HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hi, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering the sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media. That's been my bigger social media thing is like, I think like I just get bored very quickly. And even when things are working really well, I'm like, everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eats, how many E's does that feel like it sounds like? And that's why. No real good rhyme or reason to any of it, but that's also kind of been our style this whole time and producing content that resonates with young and old. You know, if someone doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, then I really failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is, or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral, too, is that um, then it becomes it's out there and and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. I think food is really kind of tied to human emotions as well, you know, sort of remind, reminding them of maybe a certain time in their life. Like, for instance, butter on corn is something that people love in the summer. And so it just kind of gets tied into people's emotions because they use it. (laughs) They live with it on a daily basis. From still life bowls of fruit and pastel paintings of cake to sensually photographed peppers and iconic Campbell soup cans, 
Food is one of our favorite things to portray and observe through the visual arts. It also plays a role in some of the earliest known artworks where the animals painted on cave walls may have represented sources of food for early humans. This week, we look at the evolution of how the culinary and art worlds have become tightly intertwined. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. If you were to think about food as art, the classic still lives of Paul Cezanne may be the first thing that come to mind. But artists have been pushing the envelope since the days of post-impressionism. And they're artistically rendering food in new and unusual ways. We turn to Kevin Chang Barnum with a story on a familiar pair of sculptors using food not as inspiration so much as their medium. You might remember that back in episode 51 of Meat and Three, Good News and Good News Only, I produced this story about butter sculptors Jim Victor and Marie Pelton. We just got done with a little tour, and during that tour, we did six butter sculptures in two months. Because that story focused on butter, I didn't talk too much about the couple's other work. Jim and Marie don't just make sculptures out of butter, they make sculptures out of all kinds of food. When a brand needs an eye-catching promotion, they call Jim and Marie. The duo has done everything, from a holiday scene made of food from Chipotle. The sky was all pepper, and we had people made out of little small peppers. To a Mount Rushmore made of Werther's candy. And then we basically pulled their caramel over the tops of the heads of the presidents and made it ooze down the mountain. But Jim and Marie aren't the only ones who create sculptures out of food. The medium's popularity goes back a long way. Buddhist monks have been doing butter sculptures for centuries. Uh, I think at their New Year's celebrations, they make them. So what is it that makes food such a compelling medium for artwork? Marie told me that a person's experience with a food can be a major factor in how they respond to the art made from it. I think food is really kind of tied to um, human emotions as well, you know, sort of reminding them of maybe a certain time in their life. Like, for instance, butter on corn is something that people love in the summer, you know? And so it just kind of gets tied into people's emotions because they use it. (laughs) They live with it on a daily basis. Another exciting part of using food to create art is that the medium shapes what the final product will look like in ways that you can't always control. The first time Jim and Marie worked with bacon, they made a sculpture designed to look like the winner of a contest. It turned out good, but it was kind of ghastly looking. And it just had this kind of like, almost, he looked like a flayed figure, you know? Like, it looked like him, but without skin. Uncanny as that bacon sculpture was, the recipient still loved it. So that was back in, I think, 2013. And from what we understand, this person, his name is Patrick, well, he owns a bar down someplace in the South. And so he still has the sculpture behind his bar and he keeps it covered kind of like, you know, with a a black cloth or whatever. And he charges people to see it. (laughs) Whatever the reason that these creations fascinate us, it seems that their popularity will last for years to come, even if the food used to make them doesn't. 
Our next story comes from Modernist Breadcrumbs, a special series we produced in partnership with Modernist Cuisine. Its two seasons explored bread from every angle. Hosted by Michael Harlan Turkel and Jordan Werner Berry, this episode entitled Still Life with Bread features chef Francisco Magoya. Magoya, alongside Modernist Cuisine founder Nathan Mirvold, literally wrote the book on bread. Together, they explore how the baking and artful presentation of bread conveys its rich history. Art is not what you see, it's what you make others see. Degas said that. And perhaps it's true about bread, too. It's all about capturing its essence, no matter the price or quality. In the process of writing Modernist Bread, co-authors Francisco Magoya and Nathan Mirvold face some unique and beige challenges along the way. We were working on testing all of these historical bread recipes. You know, because people put put so much, I guess, value on how bread used to be better. And we wanted to, to the best of our abilities, replicate a lot of these historical breads going up until I think we went to the early 1800s, as early as Roman times. So we had this like huge timeline of, of making breads uh, from different periods of time. So we thought we were testing these, why as well find a way to photograph them in a way that would display them, that would do them honor, right? And so what we did is, is like a, it's like a still nature, one of those paintings where you have like fish and lemons and there's a rabbit hanging in the back and it's like this tablecloth and like, a, uh, you know, some sort of decanter or pitcher. So we wanted to utilize that vision, but with all of the breads. I think there's about a dozen different breads on this spread. They're all on different silver platters and trays, and we incorporated pomegranates and artichokes and moss. And it was, it was, the backdrop was like, it's supposed to be like a French 17th century home. Ansel Adams once said, you don't take a photograph, you make it. And when you're making everything, the bread, the book, and the photograph, why not have a little fun? We shot uh, baguettes with like paint dripping off of them with the you know the blue, white, and red from the French flag, and so utilizing bread as the the vessel, the focal point of a beautiful environment. Those were the days I was most excited to. Not that I wasn't other days, but these these days were especially particularly exciting to me because of of, of, of what we could do with it. And frankly, it's awesome that Nathan lets us do these things, you know, because while he has things he wants shot and, and, and he, he does, uh, you know, he has his vision and whatnot, there's things that he just lets us do. Breadman, who is this huge character that we made out of bread, I mean, all he did was approve it, but we did it, you know, and that, and that part was, was super cool to put together. And, and in that case... It's, it's a sculpture made out of different breads. Bread was art in that instance. You know, it became art. Whether or not you consider the act of baking an art, we can all agree that a perfect loaf, like a painting in a museum, is something to be appreciated. So next time you bake, stand in front of your bread and really take it in. What are its aesthetics? An intricate score, golden crust, an airy crumb... What was your medium? Heritage grains grown by a local farmer are the baker's version of oils, watercolors, and charcoals. Look at its process, remembering the microbes that are responsible for its rise, 
or fermentation innovations that have affected its flavor. And what does it represent? The culture of a region, a story of immigration, or a holiday tradition? All of the things that go into bread, physically, culturally, and even emotionally sometimes, are tied up in the gluten structure, holding just as much of a story as anything hanging in the Louvre. You can listen to both seasons of Modernist Breadcrumbs on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be right back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. We go next to Rowan O'Connell Gates, who introduces us to the colorful world of acclaimed artist Wayne Tebow. Well, the, the application of paint is done in a very impasto style with very thick layers of paint. And it, it just has a very visceral and almost salivating effect on the viewer. And I've actually heard rumors that people have been, people have attempted to lick Tebow's paintings. <laughs> um, not at the, it hasn't happened at SFMOA, but there are rumors that that has happened. You just heard from Sarah Wesson Chang. She's a curatorial assistant at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. She's describing a piece by the famed painter Wayne Thibault. The painting is titled Buffet 1972-1975, and it's recently joined the SF MoMA's permanent collection. And it's, it's the largest painting of food by Thibault that I've ever seen, and it's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, fish, and an array of accompaniments. Over the years, countless painters have tried their hand at food-based art, but only a few have garnered critical acclaim for their pieces. Most folks conjure up mental images of Cezanne's fruit-filled still lifes, Picasso's platter of cubist pears, or Warhol's groundbreaking Campbell soup cans. And yet, perhaps the greatest application of food as art comes from the humble hands of the aforementioned Wayne Thibault. I would say Wayne is one of the most important uh, living painters working in America today. But he has an interesting story. For most of his career, he's been considered an iconoclast, which is another way of saying an outsider to the New York art world. At the same time, he is hugely successful. His paintings continue every year lately to sell for record prices. And yet, there's never been a dissertation written about his work. So in terms of market sales, he's a total insider. But in terms of serious consideration of his painterly project, he remains 
um, an outsider to the world of serious criticism. That's Rachel Teagle. She's the founding director at the Minetti Shrem Museum of Art. The museum is located just outside Sacramento at the University of California, Davis, where Thibault was an art teacher for over 40 years. But before teaching, before people paid for his work, Thibault had to embark on a winding journey to find his own distinct food style. Here's Rachel. He has talked about the pie and the pie being a breakthrough because it was both a formal strategy. One of the things you can see really clearly when you look at those pie paintings is that they are nothing more than circles, the plates and triangles, the slice of pie. So the breakthrough for Wayne was that he found a formal strategy, but he had paired it to really what was pop art content, what could be more um, symbolically American than a slice of cherry pie. Fast forward one year, and Wayne Thibault found himself and his pie paintings at the center of the American art world. So in 1962, he had a one-man show at the Allen Stone Gallery in New York, and it sold out, but it didn't just sell out. It sold out. um, Art World Luminaries bought his artwork. Um, The Museum of Modern Art bought a painting out of that first show. The architect Philip Johnson bought a painting out of that first show. It, It really was one exhibition that changed everything, but it was a long time coming for him. By a long time coming? Rachel meant that prior to 1962, Wayne Thibault was a virtually unknown painter in his mid-40s. As a young man, he'd thought he might find work as an illustrator or a cartoonist, which he did at Disney for a few years. But he soon returned to painting, and he subsequently spent a nearly two-decade span working upwards of five jobs to sustain his life as an artist. After 1962, Thibault became a household name. He doubled down on his breakthrough food paintings and further honed in on the colorful American food imagery. He became well-known for his glowing gumball machines and symmetrical slices of cake. And according to Sarah, Thibault's subsequent paintings of perfect processed foods are precisely what connects and differentiates Thibault from his painting peers. Historically, still lifes were described as nature mort, which in French means dead nature. Um, so they, while they featured beautiful foods, um, very juicy, ripe fruits, they also had bruises, um, small flaws indicating that, um, like us, they will ultimately age and decay. In many ways, uh, Thibault's paintings of food are very similar to historical still lifes in that they are a record of the historical time that these artists are living in, um, representing the the food that people were eating, the staples of their diet, but um, also very different because Thibault's paintings of food really provokes or counters that that concept of a nature mort, and that it his paintings of, for example, the the gumball machine or a wedding cake. Um, Those objects represent the time that he was living in, which was post-war America, uh, the manufacturing boom in which which foods were were mass-produced. They were highly, highly processed and meant to really be 
reliable, flawless, and to be preserved. This connection between food and the artist's place in history is perhaps best represented in Thibault's 1973 painting, Girl with Pink Hat. By this point, he was an established painter, and his painting subjects had expanded beyond food. However, even with the change of subjects, he maintained the style and message of that life-changing 1962 show. Girl with a Pink Hat is a portrait of a young, beautiful woman shown topless with a very large pink hat. And in many ways, it, it mimics his paintings of food in a way that it, it is uh, causing a reaction in the viewer um, and commenting on, on our desires for consumption, whether it be sugar or sex. And whether he's painting a portrait or a scoop of ice cream, Thibault's pieces almost always employ the same three components, geometric composition, light, and halation. Halation is perhaps his greatest tool. It originates from the German painter Joseph Albers, who greatly influenced Thibault's use of color. Um, halation was a concept put forth by, by Albers, when, which describes uh, when you set juxtaposed two colors side by side, it creates a vibrating or glowing effect, which in Thibault's case gives the objects a very animated and spirited quality. Perhaps even more extraordinary than any of Thibault's paintings is the fact that he is still painting. In November of 2020, he will turn 100. And by all accounts, he's shockingly spry and very much still involved in the art world. Just last year, he aided Chang and her SFMOMA colleagues with the curation of his very own Artist Choice exhibition. And at the Minetti Shrem, Teagle and her staff have plans to celebrate Thibault's centennial with a 2021 exhibition. In interviews, Wayne is open about how impractical his choice of an artistic career has been. By his own admission, he's been incredibly blessed. But if his winding route to the top of the art world tells us anything, it's that opportunity and inspiration can strike at any time, even when you least expect it. HRN listeners can find Thibault's latest paintings at the Paul Thibault Gallery in San Francisco, California where they will be on display until March 28th. We wrap things up this week with a story from Ruby Walsh. She talked with photographer Michael Harlan Turkel, who you heard from in the excerpt from Modernist Breadcrumbs. Turkel also hosts the HRM podcast, The Food Scene. Through photography and writing, Turkel spends a lot of time thinking about how social media and Instagram culture have influenced food photography. We're in a very interesting era, I think, of, of photography because everyone is a photographer. That's Michael Harlan Turkel, photographer, writer, cookbook author, and podcaster. As of 2019, he also teaches a course on food photography at NYU. I sat down to speak with him about food portraiture, and to learn about how new technology is constantly changing the game. The smartphone cameras that my students bring into class, some of them are better than the camera that I actually have. It's scary. 
You can snap a photo of your meal, throw a filter on it, and upload it to Instagram in less than 30 seconds. And chances are, that photo will be pretty good. But it also might look identical to lots of other pictures on the platform. Social media has certainly popularized food photography, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's driving artistic innovation. I went through Instagram and looked at food hashtags to find out what was the most popular and pizza by and far. By and far, I think there was 40 million impressions in the day that I checked it. He's right. Check Instagram and you'll see a spread of cheesy pies. And I was trying to think as to why. Again, my mind works in a very analytical way and I'm like it's it's such an easy form to photograph you know a pie is a circle a slice is a triangle the box that it comes in is a square I mean you're just playing with shapes there Uh, it's the shape that we're so used to and understood so it's about the iconography almost more so than the food food photography began with a still life a basket of peaches and a lopsided pineapple taken by William Henry Talbot in 1845 For much of the 19th century, fruit bowls and stage feasts were the only foods ever pictured. The form has evolved enormously since then. Food fascinates countless artists and has inspired a wide range of work, from Robert Maplethorpe's graceful vegetables to Martin Purr's lurid, gooey donuts. When shooting, artists play with color, contrast, lighting, and composition. Perhaps what is strange about the food portraits on social media is that so many of these images share more in common with the stage still lifes of early photography. Everyone has a camera in their pocket. And the majority of food photographs are taken from one specific angle, overhead. And that is because of the mechanics of smartphones for so long. The lens wasn't great. So if you compact a frame, uh, if you think about it, photographing overhead on a table, you know, assuming that there aren't, many things that are too tall on a plate or glasses, you're really only photographing a few inches of height. So there's not much depth that you're working with. So we flatten out food photography for a long period of time. That's why pizza looked great. In other words, food portraits snapped with a smartphone are often two-dimensional, lifeless. At the beginning of the 20th century, artists were perpetually experimenting with food portraiture. In the 1930s, photographer Edward Weston explored the sculptural beauty of ordinary vegetables. Lettuce, parsnips, and peppers were all captured by Weston in silvery black and white. Edward Weston certainly did his portraits, but he photographed this pepper. It's called Pepper Number no. Thirty, and it it was it was taken in 1930, and it is one of the most interesting images I've ever seen of a pepper. So it almost is anthropomorphically alive. It, it feels animated. It feels like a person, kind of you know, curled up or unfurling. It it almost looks like if you turned it on its side, like landscape architecture, as you saw Ansel Adams doing at the time. I I just think it was one of the first times that a singular piece of produce was looked at in a light that uh, it showed its, its depth and characteristics, its idiosyncrasies. As a teacher, Michael asks his students to think a little bit deeper about the photos they're taking, encouraging them to capture the unique character of their subjects. I actually teach my food photography course based solely on natural light because it's it's a single light source um, and it's cheap. I mean, it's free and uh, and it changes. It's a fascinating one because the colors and tones throughout the day from early morning to magic hour um, to straight overhead, you know, at lunchtime are very different. 
you know, shadows and tones. And I think that's kind of magical to have arc of different characters throughout the day from, you know, photographing a pepper. That pepper is going to look different every hour. Static, flattened food may be pervasive on social media right now. But Michael is hopeful that fresh points of view will come back into prominence. I'm, I'm tired of seeing the flat plane. I want more depth. I want more shadow play. And not just on this tabletop with, you know, the rogue fork and nobody there. I want a sense of person and a sense of place. I wanted to see more angles. You know, people got to move around more. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I like remembering meals and telling people about it. I don't need to photograph it necessarily first. But uh, I hope we somehow stop becoming a camera eats first society. To learn more about Michael's photography, you can visit www.harlanturk.com. That's our show. We hope the next time you visit a museum, you take an extra moment to appreciate a still life of a bowl of fruit or other food-related artwork. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang Barnum, Nicole Cornwell, Ruby Walsh, Rowan O'Connell Gates, and Michael Harlan Turkell. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Lead production this week was by Jessica Kreinchich. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, and our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Beaten 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And please stay in touch. You can write us anytime at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about Host, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my all-in-the-industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Junie Porrent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.